So as I mentioned, we're in our fifth week um, in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and, and Paul, um, starting that chapter, and it's a passage we focused in on Easter, uh, talks to this church that he's been, he's been talking to at that point for 14 chapters, and then he even wrote another letter that we have uh, later, and, and uh, his, his main point is to focus on those things, he says, of first importance, namely that Christ died for us and rose from the grave uh, to give us new life, and then he details um, kind of the implications of the resurrection. And, and, and kind of implicit in that is that, that he knows uh, all the problems that the Corinthians church are happening, that are happening, um, he would trace them back to a bad understanding of what Christ has done and then what that means for what's happen, what has happened for us now and what will happen in our destination. So I'm going to invite Abby to read our concluding passage, verses 50 through 58. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, and at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Thanks, Abby. What would happen if you could disappear fear? If you could disappear fear? That's a question a, an episode of the NPR podcast I listened to a couple months ago asked. You, know, you see, the program is called Invisibilia. <clears throat> and it um, describes itself as exploring the intangible forces that shape human behavior. This particular episode zoomed in on fear and what fear causes us to do and not to do, how it motivates us and in some cases actually helps us, how fear is built in to us. It's, it's nearly innate something we only sometimes think about and, and are aware of, but drives us, drives our assumptions about the world we live in. Think how often you make decisions based on fear. Think harder now, because fear doesn't just govern our decision-making when it's time to decide, like, to jump out of a plane or like, to cliff dive or something stupid like that. Fear governs often how we decide to spend our time and our precious money, how we're going to parent our kids and what schools we're going to send them to, who we're going to invite into our homes or who we'd even roll our windows down for, which neighbors we're going to let into our lives even 
when we assume that our lives are already crowded and it looks like they're going to take up a lot of room. Fear governs who we will and won't hurt with, who we will and won't pray for, who we will and won't join together with. Fascinatingly, the podcast spends some time on the science of fear. And it talks about how fear is kind of actually a physical, even maybe a chemical thing. And it speculates that it can be transferred from snakes to human beings. you got to listen to this thing. It's kind of crazy. It even quotes that Genesis curse um, that, that the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and eat the dust of, of the earth all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He quotes the Bible. It's got to be good, right? It also spends time on a woman who cannot fear. She has no ability to fear. She's normal in most ways, but it's, it's physiologically impossible for her to fear. Her amygdala, is that, am I saying this right? Yes. I, I know I'd get dinged if I wasn't. I can't say Latin words because of the medical people. I can't say Greek words because of the div students. So... Um, her amygdala was completely calcified. You think that this would make her like really awesome, right? Like she can't fear. She's like a superhero, or she could be like Evil Knievel's replacement, right? Like she'd be on primetime TV, or, or James, she'd, she'd be like WWF wrestler, right? But in actuality, this lack of fear makes her quite at risk. You see, quote, normal people have that healthy fear that they avoid, quote, dangerous situations. We, we do the math and we, we see a dark alley and a late night equals potentially unsafe situations. So we reroute, she can't do that math. Now this one, throughout her life, she's been held at knife point several times, threatened several times, experienced some pretty traumatic stuff. But her encounters, she, um, she, they didn't affect her the way they affect us. That's an interesting part of her testimony is in the research around her that she experienced a lot of disturbing things more than most normal people. But they don't traumatize her the way they do us. Her lack of fear and her freedom from fear captivating her memory makes those occurrences less harmful somehow, less traumatic. A normal person experiences a lot fewer bad things, and we're way more scarred by them. In some cases, we're enslaved by that memory than this fearless woman, because she couldn't fear her encounters, didn't make her hurt or afraid or suspicious. They didn't enslave her. They didn't change her. Fear didn't rule her. Fear and death had lost its sting in her life. She, she's kind of a, a real-life parable of this post-Easter reality that Paul beckons the Corinthians church to, to live into, that he tells us to live into. It's a world in which death, while still on the prow, has been swallowed up in victory. Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory by Christ saving death on the cross and being raised by the Holy Spirit. We should be braced for transformation. 
probably more braced for the surprise of seeing how things will be the same, but kind of different, transformed, transfigured, given imperishability, the ability not to die and not to be ruled by the, sh- the threat of death. Paul talks about clothing when he talks about this. The perishable will be clothed in the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. It's the same lingo he used last week when we talked about being transformed from soulish bodies to bodies of the spirit, bodies motivated and and animated by God's Holy Spirit, life breathed into us. And and just like, like those Ezekiel bones, right? Life breathed into them reanimated in, in, in living into a world that death does not knock at our door. So we'll, we'll then wear God. We'll be clothed in this. One of uh, my former teachers um, wrote a book recently called Wearing God. Her name is Lauren Winner. And she talks about this metaphor, being clothed. Paul uses this, this a lot. He talks about in Romans, all these bad things, but rather clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in Ephesians 6, he says, he talks about being clothed in the armor of God. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can stand against the devil's schemes. What does that mean for us? (laughs) That's a great metaphor, but what is that? Like, can we just go to the closet and pick up Jesus and wear him? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I think the point is that, that while, while sin crouches at the door, while sin threatens to hurt us, that we, we can live into this, this, new, this new reality. We can live into this, this clothing of Christ. And, and it's a, a clothing that actually, if you think of clothing, it, it touches your most vulnerable parts of yourself touches the scars and the things that you don't want. You, you wear clothes so people will not see and touch those parts. Parts of shame. Parts that, that you've, been, you've been hurt. <laughs> and, and, and Paul uses this metaphor that God is going to touch those parts. He's going to cover them. He's going to transform them. He's going to make room for them in the, in the new reality, in the resurrection, in this raised eternality. But while, I'm sorry. <laughs> that we'll have, have a chance to, to wear this imperishability. Like, it, everything we do is so motivated by fear, so motivated by death, so motivated by the memory of these things that have been done to us, like this, this woman is unable to do that we, we shrink from it and we, we don't live into the fullness of what God has for us most of the time. But wearing God, putting Christ over those pockmarked things by death, those tattoos of our bad choices, those scars where others have harmed us, those souvenirs of hard living, of, of far country living, the things we bring back to God, they're known by God. 
They're known by God in Christ. They have room in the resurrection. Once you take fear and death and fear of death out of the equation, those are memories that they're actually tokens of salvation, of God's faithfulness. We, we can remember them as like scrapbooks of how God has been faithful to us. They're, they can actually become features in this like tapestry that God's weaving. This, that the, the spirit is remaking and making and remaking and creating and recreating this new creation tapestry. And then Paul, in our passage today, he remixes Israel's hope. He, he remixes that, that writing found in the prophets and some of the writings of the early Christians. And he lets on that resurrection surprises us, but it, it's also been the logical conclusion to Israel's story, to God's people's story the whole time. If God is going to make things right, if he's going to bring justice and renewal, and that's what we're expecting, right? We can look around and see this world is messed up. We can look in the mirror and see that we're messed up. And we pray, come Lord Jesus, and we want renewal. We want justice. If that's going to happen, we're going to inevitably have to deal with death. We're going to inevitably have to deal with all the things that trickle down from our fear of death. Once and for all, if our future is eternal, sin and death have to stop robbing us from living fully. We see that in Israel's history, resurrection is the necessary outcome of God's intent to redeem the world. But while sin and death sit around like like wolves at the door, ready to pick us apart, like snakes, ready to to strike. I hate snakes. I'm like Indiana Jones with snakes, right? Like scorpions that are poised to to poison us. Paul pulls back the curtain on all of that. He unmasks them as phonies. They're like paper tigers. (laughs) He taunts our occupying oppressor whose fangs and venom have been removed. Think how you would act. Like we go to Myrtle Beach sometimes and there's this lion um, tank and there's like four inch thick glass in between them. And we have all these pictures with our little children, like inches from this tiger. And, And like, when would we ever do that if we weren't so assured of this glass and that their sting had been removed? Paul unmasks these things as, as, you know, an occupying force that stands there looking tough in riot gear while it trembles underneath it. Uh, Maybe armed with the teeth, but there's no ammunition in that gun. He chants, and I like to think that he chants and his arms are linked with Isaiah and Hosea and John the Baptist and John the Revelator, and he chants, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Hosea 13 has the Lord taunting death even as his people are addicted to it. Their imaginations are bewitched by it. In the vein of, an idol, of the idol taunting in some of the Psalms, exposing them as not gods, impotent wannabes before God, Israel's true God, God says, to them, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. 
I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? How easy is it to look around at like Kathmandu or West Baltimore and and wonder aloud, where is God in all of this? To assume that evil is alive and well. The prophets call us to anticipate a victory that's already shored up in Christ. A victory that abolishes the need for fear and violence on one side and the, and the need for anger and violence on the other. The heart of the gospel of Jesus is that all of the action and reaction and reaction to reaction, that endless spiral of sin-based, death-motivated fear that humanity lives and dies by, that's done. It's been put to sleep been raised anew with the possibility for peace, for resurrection, for renewal, for reconciliation, hope. And Paul situates this Christian hope in the echo of the prophet Isaiah's hope. It says, on this mountain, the Lord God Almighty will prepare a rich feast of food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, those old clothes. The sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And then, so Paul is in the echo of that, and then he fast forwards to the horizon of John's vision in Revelation. It says, I heard a voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then Paul says, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing about victory. It, kinda, it, warrants, it warrants a lot of responses, but it, I think it warrants three responses in particular. Victory warrants thanks, and it warrants party, (laughs) and it warrants rest. Think about some time you've experienced victory, Uh, maybe even a small one. You've finished a a semester. (laughs) You finished a race. Uh, You finished a pregnancy. Um, Can I get an amen? Um, You finished a hard day of work, like You've probably felt those, those three things. Thanks, party, excitement, rest. In the life of Jesus, we see these things as he, as he lives into this victory that is already assured. In John's gospel at Lazarus' tomb, he prays, Father, I thank you for you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of everyone around me, that they may believe that you sent me. 
all of this before he even calls Lazarus come out. That resuscitation of Lazarus, it's like a resurrection hors d'oeuvre that he's doing there. It comes even before the victory is secured. Jesus' trust in the Father allows him to thank God for a victory that hasn't yet happened all the way. And then party. (laughs) From Jesus' first miracle at the wedding at Cana to his controversial dinner parties with tax collectors and sinners, the question gets put to him in Matthew 8. How is it that we, the Pharisees, fast often, but your disciples don't? Why do they party so much? is basically what they're saying. Jesus says, how can the guests of the the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? I'm here, let's party, is what he's saying. This is a major sticking point for the the business-as-usual religious people that he's talking to. That he he might have this restoration feast while it still felt like they were in exile. That he might be having these resurrection parties while the people he's dining with look really dead everyone else. Jesus anticipates with his party. And then rest. Jesus evidences this confident rest in his own retreats to silence and solitude. Even in the invitation he issues, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. We find with Jesus the pace of someone who's both urgent, but also able to rest, rest assured. Like uh, We read the bedtime story the other day of, of Jairus, and, and there's this urgency. Again, a, a resurrection story uh, of Jairus' daughter who's, who, who's asleep, um, they find out, and Jesus is going to her, and he gets, si- he gets sidetracked. <laughs> Jesus' pace is such that he can be interrupted um, and, and has a healing encounter with a woman. And then he goes and raises this girl. Jesus has this pace of his life that is so confident, so assured. And if the resurrection of our bodies is bound up in the resurrection of Jesus' body, which is Paul's main point, I think our victory also is bound up in Jesus' victory. If he's the first fruits of what it might mean to be a human being not driven by fear or lack or scratching and clawing to achieve and to be loved, maybe we belong in there. Maybe we're attached to that ability to rest in God's love. Among other things, these three thanks, party, and rest, I think they're hallmarks of the Christian life. It's an abundant life flowing out of God's faithfulness. Jesus' victory over sin and death on the cross and his resurrection. Any of the three of these are great entry points, too, or or maybe re-entry points into a kind of a a with-God life. If If you felt far from God or if you've never known life with God, start by thanking him. Thank him for what he's done on your behalf, and for what he's done for you in Christ. Or you can enter, enter by just by worshiping him, by rejoicing, by partying, by losing your cool over the crazy love that he sent his son to show us. Or just rest, 
that's like the hardest thing for us to do is just to take our hands off of it, to just rest in the center of God's love for you. Put him on like a, like a garment. Put him on close to all those places that you don't want anyone to see or touch, that you're ashamed of, that used to be shame. Make them your glory in Christ. Let him transform you with his creative, redeeming love. Sometimes, like a song or a lyric or a poem can really say this stuff better than we can. So like, I like to go back to old stuff. And I, I just want to close with, with the lines of this 12th century hymn. And we don't even know who wrote the thing. But it, I think it expresses well this shared victory that's ours because of the Father's defeat of sin and death by raising his Son by his Spirit. The, the hymn is known as, The strife is o'er, the victory done. It says, The strife is over, the victory done. The, the strife is over, the battle done. The victory of life is won. The song of triumph has begun. Alleluia. Alleluia, alleluia. The powers of death have done their worst. But Christ their legions hath dispersed. Let shouts of holy joy outburst. Alleluia. The three sad days are quickly sped. He rises glorious from the dead. All glory to our risen head. Alleluia. He closed the yawning gates of hell. The bars of heaven's high portals fell. Let hymns of praise his triumphs tell. Alleluia. Lord by the stripes which wounded thee, from death's dread sting thy servants free, that we may live and sing to thee. Alleluia. Pray with me. Father, all we have to say is Alleluia. Praise the Lord. Praise you for Raising Jesus from the dead. Praise you for eliminating death. Help us live fearless lives. Confident lives of, of joy. Confident lives of thanks. Confident lives of insane party because of what you've done and how much you loved us. Confident lives that can rest in your love. Lord, help us be a, a resurrection people. Motivated out of and animated by these, these new hearts that you've given us in your spirit. Hearts that can love with some of your love Hearts that love who you love and how you love. Father, make us hopeful people and, and let some of that hope rub off on each other, on our neighbors. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us be agents of this reconciliation, agents of hope and healing and hospitality. Help us hear your call when you're calling us and help us be faithful to respond.
Lord, we're so thankful for who you are, for how much you love us, for including us in your life, in the life of this world to come. We thank you so much. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.